This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity and Captivity, and I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I welcome a multi-talented comedian and a devilishly clever writer who served as co-executive producer on The Simpsons. He is the podcast host of The Dana Gould Hour and has been seen on HBO, Conan, and Letterman. On this episode, he shares his love of Planet of the Apes, Johnny Carson, and horror films. He explains how laughter and screams both offer a way to relieve tension. Together, we explore the clever names of animal groupings and birds of prey. Stick around for some good old school Dana Gould. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la, la 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 la. Hi, Pat. I tried to fill most of the time with your introduction. You also left out old friend of yours. There's an intersection in our lives, and we haven't seen each other in long stretches of time, but so much that uh, we have in common from stand-up comedy to writing on staffs to a universe of friends and quirky things. I guess I wonder, let's just start with what you were like as a kid, because I know your voice as a writer, and I know your love of horror, and I know your attachment to the Planet of the Apes. I'm wondering, just in the sort of the Petri dish in the beginning, how that all unfolded. Well, yeah, I'm from a very large family. I grew up in the middle of Massachusetts, very blue collar. I mean, if you imagine the world of the TV show Roseanne, that was the world that I grew up in. Um, I have four older brothers and uh, one younger sister, and everybody was drunk all the time, hunting, big sports guys. And I was this weird, as I said, the white sheep of the family. (laughs) (laughs) The Marilyn Munster syndrome. And, and, and it's funny because I'm, I'm very good friends with Bobcat Goldthwait and we, and we talk about this a lot. Both of our families thought we were gay as kids because we did not want to go hunting. I grew up very much uh, an outcast in my own uh, family. And because I was towards the tail end of a very large group of people and my parents were rarely sober, I grew up largely unsupervised. When I was about 10 years old, I would watch The Tonight Show. You know, I'd stay up till about, you know, 1 a.m. And then I'd uh, get up and go to school. I wanted to be a comedian really early because I really locked in on that kind of thing. And that was the way I survived in my family was by being funny and stuff. When I saw you as a comic in L.A. in Prov Days Comedy Magic Club, what I was impressed with is that naturally you had a, you were a deep thinker, but you had no problem cutting open the pain and just laying it out. And here's what's interesting in observation is that you wrote in scenes. No, I didn't. You know, this is really inside baseball, but that's what the point of this podcast is. So I'll, the way I write, if we want to get to that, is I see the image in my head. And I describe it. That's how I write jokes. What's great about it is it's nothing I can really take credit for. The stuff just comes. 
(laughs) Right. But, but here's the thing. You're setting the scene. At a very young age, at nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, I was watching comedians from another generation. Although I was a a, a modern standup, I wrote in a way that was older. I was writing, you know, from comedians of the from the mid-century forward that did bits that did scenes and that really influenced the way that I wrote my point I think of celebrating this approach is that not only do you set the scene and do it but you actually play the characters often or you yeah. play yourself within it and you open your mind up to it and I think it's a very vulnerable thing to approach and yet you have a little bit of linguistic gymnastics is that you know how to stick the dismount. You know how to make them laugh in the discomfort. You're a big game fisherman. Sure. You get the audience on the hook and you bring them close to the boat and then you make them uncomfortable and you send them out and reel them back in. But that's all very intentional. And it's not so much an accomplishment because it's the only thing I know how to do. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know how to do it the other way. I can only do it. I like the score. I like the squirminess. Bobcat and I did a tour in February of 2020. It was like the la- the world's last gasp. And we filmed four shows. And also we filmed ourselves driving to the shows. It was Atlanta, Asheville. It was down south. Asheville, North Carolina, and some other places. And, and it tells a story, too, because Bob and I used to not be friends, like aggressively not friends. And now we're best friends. So it, it's an interesting story. And we talk about it very, like Bob also is one of those people that's just like, <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> that sound effect, by the way, so people listening. <laughs> oh yeah, right, Cut, cutting itself open. It wasn't yeah. gas. What it was, yeah. was him tearing open his chest cavity yeah, yeah. and laying his heart out and hoping the audience would appreciate him. Right, and, and Bob is Bob is the same way. And so we talk about both of our desire to to make the audience uncomfortable and then and, and to pull and then to, and to pull the laugh out of it, and it's interesting that we both love the same kind of music. We both like love punk music and then the Who and Elvis Costello, and, and and all of those people challenge the audience to have more of an experience than just Journey or Ario Speedwagon. Like you're you're challenged a little bit, and I think it came as really not even a conscious decision. It's like, well, of course I'm going to do that. I like people to not know what's coming. I like people to not know what's next. Uh, one of the, the, the bits that I do that people tend to comment on a lot is a bit I did on my last special about the Black Dahlia murder, where I do like a 90-second dead serious description of the Black Dahlia, the Elizabeth Short. You, you anchor in the truth. Yeah, very graphic description of her remains. That it goes beyond what's to, to the point that the audience really doesn't know what I'm doing. And then I just sit in the silence for a minute. And it's great because they don't know what happened. And then there's a line that brings them out of it. And the laugh, it's more relief than anything else. It's like, oh, God, he knew what he was doing. <laughs> this applies to your other work is you know how to create tension. Yeah, that's what it is. That's what it's and then you know how to relieve tension. You've created the show Stand Against Evil, which it is a tightrope of a balance between humor and horror, which both require tension to be built. Yeah, they're cousins. They're, you know, laughing and screaming are very similar. They're involuntary reactions that relieve tension. 
you know, and, and a lot of times when people laugh, like it's October, I go to all these haunted houses that are in LA, like Universal Studios. And where other people scream, I laugh. Like if a guy jumps out, if there's a jump scare, I don't go, ah, I laugh. And it's not intentional. It's just my reaction to it. I think people are that way, even when confronting being at a funeral or something. There's there's something yeah. about laughter as a release that is a different kind of way of the shock coming out. That's the op- That's the opening line of... George Carlin's class clown album, best laughter is suppressed laughter. Like when you're Uh, kneeling in front of the casket, (laughs) the opening line. That's very funny. Yeah, he was good. (laughs) Yeah, Turns out he's got promise. Yeah. You created this show, Stand Against Evil. And first of all, it's cast so well. Yeah, we are really lucky. John C. McGinley, he's like the perfect guy that he's so serious. He can be so... Yeah, he plays it straight as a heart attack, but he knows... What he's he doing. knows where the funny is. Yeah, yeah, he's a good and he's a good guy too. He, we really grew close on that. When you're working on a show like that, when is your story compass pointed to True North on where the humor and the and the horror? Oh, for for that show, it was easy. The premise of Stand Against Evil was simple, and it took me. It was so simple, it took me forever to come up with it. To take a character from one kind of show and put him into another kind of show where he did not belong and force the other show to adapt to him. Uh, And in my mind, it was, what if instead of David Duchovny on the X-Files, she was partnered with Archie Bunker from All in the Family? Really, my father is who I'm casting, really. But it's like, what if Gillian Anderson was saddled with an older guy that didn't necessarily believe or disbelieve, but just didn't care, but had to still go about her life? And, and, and that's what it was. The joke that my brothers and I would tell about our father is it's not that he doesn't believe in stuff. He just doesn't give a shit. <laughs> you know? and, and, and I thought that was a really interesting thing to play. And I did. I, I've always loved horror movies. You know, that was my friend Matt Weinhold says, that's my football. And so it's only it's come at this sort of the middle period of my career where I've really created this niche where all of the stuff that I do now is sort of tinged by that. I'm doing, I did Stand Against Evil. I'm doing, I do Plan 9 from Outer Space Live. Mm-hmm. I do personal appearances as Dr. Zayas from Planet of the Apes. I know. I got it. We got to talk about that. That's hilarious. It took me two decades to figure out how to just incorporate the stuff that I really am passionate about and love into my work. And instead of just keeping them separate. And I like having a little niche. I like the specificity of what I do. Again, it's like music. Ario's Ario Speedwagon sold a lot more albums than Elvis Costello in 1980. But Elvis Costello is better. I subscribe to the phrase, your vibe becomes your tribe. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Joel Hodgson uh, says that. Uh, Not everybody will get it, but the right people will get it. Well, that makes it so great. Obviously, when you talk to them after the show, when you uh, infuse a reference from the 70s that's very specific, they're right there with you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You want to have your... Your uh, your thing, like I never go. I don't, I don't like to spoon feed the audience. As a, I think that the audience appreciates a performer not talking down to them. I mean, I, I the thing I liked about The Simpsons is that if you didn't get the joke, we didn't care, right? And if you got it, you appreciated it more. Now, there's always stuff. There's stuff in there for everybody. My favorite TV show is The Twilight Zone. What, what is great about that show is <clears throat> when you watch it, you're like, oh, this show doesn't think I'm an idiot. 
No, it was very, very sophisticated writing. And and the stories have a very long shelf life. He's writing about racism, using aliens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's insane. And everybody's yeah. smoking with grease. Just imagine what people smelled like back then. Everybody's hair had like a half a pound of pomade in it. Uh, everyone's wearing cologne. Everybody's smoking all day. It's just the world must have smelled so different. Well, that, when I was a kid and I saw... Johnny talking to Ed McMahon, whatever they they had cocktails and they had cigarettes in the very oh, beginning, yeah. you know, and they would go across on the break and drink at the, you know, whatever oh, that. Yeah, uh, I know it's great. Steakhouse is across the way. <laughs> it's still there. It's still there. Smokehouse. The smokehouse. The smokehouse. Right there you go. <laughs> you know, we were thinking. I was talking to somebody the other night about like I feel bad. There's this great new language that we have. I feel bad that Johnny died before he could use it because I can just imagine him like my crazed web designer download on your sister's Google Doc. You got a you got a whole thing there, right? Yeah. May, may, may have Mark Ruffalo impersonator been fracking on your sister. There's <laughs> 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 so much stuff that he would have gone bananas over. You've got a great rhythm of what I would call a collection of things. <laughs> yeah, 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 right? yeah. yeah. You're, they're sort of like, here's the thing that ties it together. Yeah. It's just, it's Mad Libs. It's just Mad Libs. We're doing, well, you know Rob Cohen. Sure. He directed uh, a number, did he direct your? Standing in Stephen, yeah. And and he's my best friend and we've shared an office on the Ben Stiller show and have been friends ever since. We're doing a, a thing. And again, this is my goal in life is to spend several thousand dollars on a joke less than a thousand people get. That's a good ratio. I, I support that ratio. It's going to put it up on YouTube. Dr. Zayas's talk show from the 70s. And it's going to look like Dick Cavett. We've already done some of it. It looks like Dick Cavett, but it's Dr. Zayas. And the guests are going to be on a screen like Space Ghost. Right. But it's still all that, the ashtray on the desk. Is it called Dr. Zayas's talk show or do you have a... I think it's going to be called Hanging with Dr. Z. Rob wanted to call it Hanging and Banging with Dr. Z, but we thought people might misinterpret it. <laughs> Paul Greenberg. He's going to be our, our musical conductor. And so we're going to be going back and forth like Doc and Johnny. So we've been writing all of these. Oh, cool. George Meyer on The Simpsons had a great line when, you know, we'd pitch a joke and then you just start adding crap to it because everybody wants to get in on it. And he would say, uh, one joke per joke. <laughs> <laughs> this is really true. You know, there was a thing that we used to say, are you familiar with the term of uh, uh, hang a lantern on it. Have you, are you? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. But it was funny when I was first in sitcom writing and I would hear these things like, Oh, it's a green tuxedo or whatever. And you'd go, Oh no, I'm not in the club. I don't know exactly what that means. Yeah. You know, or a Nakamura. Yeah. Do you know what that no, is? No, Share it with us. Uh, a Nakamura is, uh, it came from the show Newhart. It's a callback to a joke that didn't get a laugh. <laughs> they had this like new kind of camera called a Nakamura, and they just kept calling it back and calling it back and calling it back, but the camera joke never landed. And so it was like six callbacks to a joke that wasn't funny to begin ah, with. Yeah, and, and hanging a lantern on it, for those that aren't familiar, is shine a light on the problem so bright that everybody has to be aware of it. Or add a little fleur de lis to the punchline. Hang a lantern on the blow. It has its own subculture. And I, yeah, I, yeah, totally, I imagine totally. The Simpsons sort of has a storied sense of what the room is like, because being good in the room, which I know Conan was famous for and others, um, you know, that's a little bit of what I did in sitcom land was you have to be funny and you have to be a joke sniper when necessary and all of that. But 
it was important in some ways that somebody keep the room alive. Well, that was me. That was me in every job I've had. I used to do this bit where I would pick up the um, pencil sharpener, right? It was on a battery and I'd put a pencil in it and then I'd pick it up and I would shave my face with it and then my underarm (laughs) and it would make that grinding sound. You know, and and it never failed when people were starting to dull out the face gag. Oh yeah, I would, yeah. I had many, many room bits, none of them repeatable now. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It was was a different world, man. It was it was a drastically different time. Yeah, well, the, the interesting thing about the Simpsons writer's room is just what a physical disappointment it is. It's like if you've ever been in the office of an auto body or a bowling alley, it's just like, this is it. Right. Nobody hangs pictures of their family on the wall. No, it's just it's kind of like Shirley Temple's old schoolhouse. Right. The crappier the show, the more lavish the office And it always seems those offices, I mean, I was in some temp buildings, whatever, but they seem like sort of shoddy insurance businesses that may have to move if people come back to make a claim, you know, like you pick up, get the computers, let's get out of here. They built a building at the CBS Radford lot. It was designed like not by writers. And there was this one room on Parks and Rec. There was a writer's room that was a large conference room with fluorescent lighting. You couldn't open the windows. And every position had a computer screen in front of it. So you literally, you were in a dark, airless room and you couldn't see anyone else. And it was like designed by the CIA to destroy creativity. <laughs> right. And and we just left. We never went in there. It's like, I can't work in here. It's, it's insane. Well, when they built on that Radford lot at Seinfeld, when they built like a little corner of Central Park, it was like, oh, I can go out. People need to feel like they're in the world. Everybody who knows you well knows that you are a Planet of the Apes, you like everything file, whatever you call that. Oh, I think it would just be Planet of the Apes so file. <laughs> right. And I just think it's hilarious and amazing that you reach the point that you play Dr. Zayas. Pretty ridiculous. <laughs> I know. So I'm, there's, there's a few things that I'm curious about. What the application process is when you go into makeup? Oh, okay. let, me explain how, let me explain how it started first. Yeah, that's important. It seems crazy. I was a writer on the Ben Stiller show in the early 90s, and I had an idea for a sketch, which was Planet of the Apes, the musical. (laughs) This was before The Simpsons, Planet of the Apes, the musical. And I did not have anything to do with that. But I had this idea. And the bit for Stiller, since we were live action, was it was just going to be a commercial for it coming to town. And the way, like, when Hamilton comes to town, yeah. they have the current news. So you just see snippets and bits of it. And I thought it'd be really funny. And it would be a good excuse to put on the makeup, which I'd always wanted to do from when I was a kid. And then the call, like, the callback to the bit was in the same episode from the producers of Planet of the Apes, the musical. Hal Holbrook is Dr. Zayas as Mark Twain tonight. (laughs) And it would be Dr. Zayas doing Mark Twain tonight. Unfortunately, the show got canceled before we ever got the opportunity to do that. Uh, So that's 1992. Flash forward to like 2010 or something. I'm talking to John Hodgman, and he had this weird internet. Like he found a, somebody sent him a photo of one of the actors from the original movie reading the Mark Twain biography on the set in his makeup. Oh, God. And he was like, can somebody on the internet give me an impression of Dr. Zayas doing Mark Twain tonight? Anybody on the internet. It was like a weird internet challenge. And we were on the phone talking about something completely different. 
And he mentioned that to me and I said, oh, that's so funny. I actually wrote that as a sketch 20 years ago. And he said, do you want to do it at my show at Sketchfest? Ah. And I was about to say, no, I don't. How can I? I don't. I'm not. A, and then I thought, well, wait a minute. The KNB effects, which is a big special effects. They do The Walking Dead mm. and every Quentin Tarantino movie. And I mean, they're the guys for that. They're all really good friends of mine. The N is Greg Nicotero, who's uh, one of my closest friends. If you know The Walking Dead, you, you've seen his name in the credits. So I said, well, hang on. Let me just let me just see. And it's, and it's like how cool my life is and how lucky I am. Like I just call up, hey, Greg, do you have somebody there that could do uh, Dr. Zayas makeup on me? Uh, like up in San Francisco, like we'll fly him and put him up. Hang on a minute. Hey, do you want to go to the Sudan? Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's just that easy. <laughs> Anything's possible. Anything's possible. Anything's possible. And so uh, we, we did it. And it's on YouTube. You can look. Data Gould, Dr. Sayers, Mark Twain. You can see it. It's so funny because I showed it to John Landis, the director uh, of you know, Animal House in America, World of London, the Blues Brothers. He was actually in Battle for the Planet of the Apes. As a ape or a man? As a man. Wow. And he's a stuntman. He was an extra. He was not a, he was a PA on Beneath the Planet of the Apes or something. Or no, he was on the lot when it was shooting. And so I showed it to him. And he said, more specific. It's not specific enough. Which <laughs> is like, he was joking. <laughs> but I was like, I think you've gotten to the end of it. So that worked really well. And then somebody else saw it and said, hey, could you do this? And could you do this? And so I'm friends with this guy and I pay him and he runs the molds. And, and the makeup that I wear is exactly what they had in the movie. And that's the stipulation because the joke doesn't work. Right. If it's a crappy mask. The, the, the point has to be, that's him. And, and the beautiful thing in the video if you see the video on youtube when i walk out on stage it's dr zayas in a mark twain suit and you can see the audience you can hear the audience laugh but then they realize they see that it's the real deal that's exactly what they remember from the movie and there's a huge other laugh because you're not supposed to see that it's again it's surprising that's the the, the fun part of it and then he's developed as a like a fun character like if when we were kids and you'd see like Merv Griffin or Mike Douglas, when you would come home from school, these, they used to have these talk shows in the afternoon and Orson Welles would always go on. And they're always just like dropping names about celebrities. I always love when you'd see a, a talk show in there and they're mentioning other celebrities, like they're their friends. And it was just such a weird world. Th that's what he's developed into as a character. Now he's just a showbiz name dropper. Right. And he just shows up and it's like, he's an actor. He was around, he was in the movie Planet of the Apes, but that's not all he's done. Right. And and he's done a lot of other stuff. And he just says something like, I'll tell you what the forbidden zone is, being stuck in escrow with Alan Alden, that guy. <laughs> How many times can you inspect a chimney? Seriously. Well, do Dr. Zayas, the Minister of Science, has become your Tony Clifton. That's exactly because right, yeah. I, which was the alter ego to Andy Kaufman. So yeah. I'm imagining that Dr. Zayas will probably be the one, when you pass, that'll probably speak on your behalf. Yeah, he'll still come. He'll still show up. Yeah. Yes, that's my that's my hope, and it really is true. It's like I wish it wasn't as expensive to do. I do love the. I was always envious of of people that had a character, you know, that they could just and it would had nothing to do with their own life. Like I'm, I'm like I love. I'm such a fan of Pee Wee Herman, and like the fact that I know Paul Rubens is, is one of those things that reminds me that I'm through the looking glass. 
You bring up an interesting thing, though, that I think most people don't know is that when you get into makeup and you get in the costume and you get in the voice, you absolutely become the person. Right. So tell me how how when you speak as the character, how you begin to think in the character. Uh, it's really, really interesting you say that because the, la- the last two times I did it, and this was because of COVID, I had to do the makeup myself with Andy walking me through it on Zoom. Andy Schoenberg is the makeup artist and he works for KNBFX. And I don't know how to do that. He literally walks me through it like, now do this, now do this, now do this, now do this. And I have enough mechanical skill that I can do what I'm told. But the minute the face goes on, my voice changes. I mean, even if I'm not like, could you hand me that brush? Like it just is a natural thing. He's just like a sarcastic old celebrity trapped in his era, like trapped in the 70s. And you're doing the, was it Morris Evans? Was that the name of the guy? Yeah, Maurice Evans. Yeah, yeah. Maurice. Because it's funny, I would mix them up. Like I always thought Paul Williams who played. No, he was also from Battle for the Planet of the Apes that John Landis is a stuntman in, but he played a different character. Right, it was Virgil or something. Virgil, Yeah. yeah. And I've performed with him. As Dr. Zayas. Oh, my God. I performed with Paul Williams. That's insane. That's insane. When he saw me, he said, very hard to do cocaine in that. Oh, (laughs) no. Yes, I think it's safe. Tragedy plus time equals comedy. Couldn't be a nicer guy. I didn't really watch any of the newer Planet of the Apes things. I It was a little, it was just too real. Yeah. And even what's something disconcerting about when they do the CGI of groups of monkeys and things, it's the Polar Express. The, the humans, they are, look too human and yet not human at all. <laughs> well, they're certainly not interesting characters. There's something about the original ones. I like the title. They just use an of or a from or a for, right? Like it's, Yeah, they just stick a thing in. <laughs> beneath the escape uh, quest of, I guess maybe they stopped because they ran out of. Well, every, t- every time they made the movie, they had less and less money to do it. It was the inverse of today. Literally, after Battle for the Planet of the Apes, they couldn't get less money they could they couldn't find a way to make right. it for less the title money. would have been excuse for another planet of the apes yeah exactly right. the next movie would have been county of the apes right. they'd have to downscale it right. that's a good one that's a dave higgins joke <laughs> i'm going to use the grouping of apes as a way to introduce this is a made-up game for today but are you familiar with james lipton who used to interview folks. Actor studio. Yes. Well, some time ago, and I remember reading this book just after college, he wrote a book about groupings of things. It was called The Exaltation of Larks. That's what a group of larks is. Oh, right. And this was just a compendium of those things, like a pride of lions, a pod of whales, murder of crows. Right. And some of them we're familiar with. But The game for you, I'm going to introduce a thing and you tell me what the bigger grouping of that thing would be. Okay. These are real. So you may well, I know you may not. I've made one up uh, uh, inadvertently. I've already tried to introduce one into the vernacular. Oh, good. Which is uh, a scrote of bros. (laughs) Right. I can see that catching on pretty quickly. Uh, I'm going to sort of start off with the domestic simple thing, a blank of squirrels. Oh, a giggle of squirrels. A giggle of squirrels. Okay. A full giggle of squirrels. <laughs> That's good. It's actually a dray, D-R-A-Y. No. Wow. Oh, I thought, I, oh, I was supposed to guess them. There was a name. I thought I was making No, them you are. You, here's the thing. I'm not guessing you really know what they are anyway. But I didn't know that there was already a name for a group. Well, that's squirrels. what blows my mind, that this there's a huge hardbound book of this stuff. An obstensity of buffaloes. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, now I'm excited. Now and I get it now. It doesn't matter to me if you make it up or if you nail it. I'm staying away from the common school of fish. Sure. Okay. Right. Herd of cows. 
a pride of cats. Uh, that is not true. A pride of lions. It is a pride of lions, but it's a different thing. For lions cats. or cats? What no, is a it's, cat? uh, it's like a, a coddle or something. I'll have to go to the book on that one. Because whatever it is, I have it. Oh, you have it in, in your house. house. Yes, I will. I will let you know, but it is not a pride. A blank of ravens. This is where we put in the music, the thinking music. Right, and it's not a murder. It's not a murder nope. of ravens. I'm going to make up a name. Yeah, that's what I want. That I feel is appropriate. A mansion of ravens. Oh, I like that one a lot. Uh, it's an unkindness of ravens. An unkindness of ravens? Yeah, isn't that cool? Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's why I thought you'd like this game, because you're a word guy. I would like, if I was ever murdered, I would like to just, uh, my last word, sir, you've done me a great unkindness. <laughs> uh, how about uh, a blank of owls? This you might know. Oh, well, it's not a hoot, but it should be. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's a parliament of owls. A parliament of owls? That great novel, A Parliament of Owls. <laughs> right, the sequel to Unkindness of Ravens. <laughs> yeah, wow, I had no idea. What is this book? A collection of groupings? It, yeah, no, it's called, the book is called An Exaltation of Larks, and you can get it on Amazon. I'm gonna. I'm writing it down. It's the, it's the best back of a toilet book you can imagine. Yes, because you, only, you, you read until you're done. Right. But there's no plot. Right, that's great. An Exaltation of Larks. Yes, uh, a blank of hippos. It's not herd. It's not a herd, and it's not a hungry, hungry of hippos. Right, right, right. A dollop. Oh, no, it's a bloat. A bloat. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's appropriate. A bloat of hippos. Uh, also a bloat of pundits. Uh, right, right. Very appropriate. See, this is the fun, too. Now we can start making up our own groupings, now that we're in the right. in the zone. How about yeah. of ducks, a blank of ducks? Oh, I know that it's not a mallard. That's a type of duck. But it should be that. It should be a mallard of ducks. Well, it's a paddling. A paddling. Yeah. I mean, I think this is All weird right. because I've never really heard any of them. Right. I've never heard of them. Normally, it would just be a bunch. Right. Well, it is. A hey, bunch of ducks. Yeah. There's a lot of those out there. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, it's just like, you know, <laughs> a full orgasm of grapes. Well, I'm not hungry anymore. Right. Or I'm very hungry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Just throw them in my face. It's a zeal of zebras. It's an ambush of tigers. Oh, an ambush of tigers is really good. Yeah. So the reason I even brought this up was for the big bonus question. A blank of apes. It's not a planet of. Hmm. Now, I need a minute now. This isn't the name. I'm sure it's wrong, but I'm going to name it. And also, this would be a great movie. Good. A Fraternity of Apes. <laughs> oh, that... Uh, okay, here's the thing. One frat in the college, all apes. Right. <laughs> all right, I've got money I'm putting on that movie right now. So I'll be the first investor in a fraternity of apes. Then you can have Dr. Zayas teaching anatomy at the board. They're at the Delta House. It's yeah. actually a shrewdness of apes. A shrewdness of apes? Yes. Wow. I know. Just a little, a little learning as we go here. A little... Uh, what do you call it? Edgeotainment or whatever the kids are calling yeah, it? Yeah, infotainment. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like go to the auto caffeinasium and we will study <laughs> and eat lunch and play basketball. What's a group of bats called? I know because you live in Austin, which is so bat-centric. Oh, yeah. A cauldron of bats. All right. Well, that so ends the game. But I <laughs> I just thought because that you're a guy that enjoys a, a good word. Again, it's funny. It's like you wait, you say the thing and then you just wait for a, you wait for the image to come to your head. That's the fun thing. I mean, this is about the creative process. 
I was a comedian and that's all external. You go on stage and people think you're awesome and they clap and they point a light at you and you have a stick that makes your voice loud. And that's the feedback loop of that particular thing. When I really seriously began my writing career, it was a great change. Uh, yeah, I had to completely subsume my perform my ego and the satisfaction it was a different sense of satisfaction. And like I get a joke in the show and people laugh, eh, yeah, that's good. But the real satisfaction that I found was when you're alone and you're writing and it starts to come to you and it starts to take on a life of its own. I'm developing a show right now and, and literally like, I, I, I don't think I can tell you what it is, but it's like, I can't see anybody outside of me watching this show. <laughs> I just don't buy it. And I've told the people, like, I don't believe this is going to sell. But they think it's going to, so I'm, I'm writing it. And then you crack it and you're like, well, this is how I'm going to tell this story. And you're just alone, but you get a great sense of satisfaction from that. And it's different. Uh, it's very internal. Sure. And, and I feel like there is a audience for things that we have a sensibility for. When, when I first was writing on Seinfeld and Jerry and Larry were working on this really just after the pilot, it was called the Seinfeld Chronicles. They, sure. they just said, why we're not writing this for anyone else. We're writing this for us as the audience. That's, that's the brilliant. Yeah. Uh, but then you're surprised you're now enjoying it in spades. The idea that all of those things as a kid that made you awkward and weird, there's a, group of people who are just as yeah. awkward and weird who are coming to your underground bar. It's an unkindness of ravenous people that are, if you have to just dream big and try crazy shit and you know, like, yep. get everything out of your way, especially yourself. There's a great relief in terms of writing, you know, just start writing. You can always fix it. But it sounds to me like you're telling them to get writing or draw that first oval. Yeah, just start. You can always go back and fix it, but you can't You've got to start it. Yeah. Also, it helps to finish. It helps to finish. Even if it's terrible. If you think it's bad, turn on the TV. The world is full of bad stuff. I'm just ever grateful for you to share right, some insights and, and also some laughs and all of that good stuff. Oh, just don't ever post this. We'll be fine. All right, good. Well, anybody who wants to understand a little bit more of the Dana Gould world, you can go uh, listen to the Dana Gould Hour on a podcast or YouTube or I'm around dig deeper. I'm me on all platforms. I know that actually to me, one of the most impressive credits on like IMBD or whatever, Dana Gould as himself 60 times. <laughs> yeah, when, I when I was a kid, that was the highest honor. Johnny Carson as himself in a movie. Right? As himself. Yeah. As himself. So I, I <laughs> wish that for you the rest of your life that people know, see you as Dana Gould as himself. <laughs> <laughs> I still don't think I've arrived. Because I can't play a suspect on Columbo. Right. Sit down, Lieutenant. I, would you like some wine or coffee? And right. a, a funny sketch for Columbo would be if it's literally Michael Myers, like in the jumpsuit and the mask. And he's like, can I ask you one question? Of course. Uh, of course, Lieutenant. What would it be? <laughs> well, I live in this. I live in that swamp. Well, what's your question? Uh, is everything the way it was left in your swamp as of last night? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Has anything been removed? I didn't even get the pleasure of asking you to do things in the Don Knotts voice or any of the other uh, <laughs> great, probably skill set that's on the bottom of your old eight by ten. Just another one of just another one of my timely references. Right. <laughs>
I would say timeless because listen, I, you think you don't have an audience, but any seventies reference from evil Knievel to space food sticks to freaky cereal, right. I, I'm with you on every bit of it. Well, so, somebody described my podcast as Matlock for millennials. And I thought like, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> but uh, since, since you say Don Knotts, I'll, le- I'll leave you with this. It's visual, unfortunately, but uh, it, describe it to us. And well, I'm going to show you and I'll describe it as I show it. Everybody's into something, you know, everybody likes the same thing. It's not just you. This was sent to me. This is again in Jeff Braun, J-E-F-F-B-R-A-W-N. He has an amazing store. And this is a ghost and Mr. Chicken Ouija board. Oh, wow. Wow. Look at that. Don Knotts and a a fright of surprise and (laughs) tarot card reader. That's amazing. Yeah. Taro Taro Solomon. From the, it was just like, well, it's not just me. <laughs> the whole Ouija board movement to me is like the greatest thing in the world that people bought into it. What's also interesting is that Ouija board is only a Ouija board if it's an official Parker Brothers Ouija board. Otherwise, you have to call it a spirit board ah. because Parker Brothers copyright, it's actually copyrighted, a Ouija board. So they've literally copywritten the afterlife. <laughs> oh, hey, that's interesting. Well, I, I hope that we can speak again then in the afterlife. Indeed. In the meantime, we have this life to live. Anyway, I want to thank you so much on behalf of my producer, Amanda Rosenberg, and everybody else who's listening. I thank you for investing your time with us today. Good to see you, Pat, to be continued. I hope. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations that offer a spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under Wizbang producer Amanda Rosenberg with editing by soundsmith Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Please feel free to reach out with your input or to share a review through social media on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. That's right, it's dot fun, because dot com is not fun. Cheers.